Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome to Saving Lives That Give Life, Preventing Maternal Deaths and Advancing Women's Health. This is a forum of the Harvard School of Public Health presented with, in collaboration with the Huffington Post. And I'm Lisa Belkin. I am the senior columnist for Life, Work, and Family at the Huffington Post. And I am thrilled to be here to discuss a topic that is still of great concern, but that is getting better, largely because of the work of many of the people you see up here. In 2010, more than 280,000 women died during pregnancy or from complications in childbirth. And many, actually most, of those deaths were preventable. And so we're here today to talk about why and how to prevent them. Um, our guests, you may recognize most of them. Um, Julio Frank is the dean of the Harvard School of Public Health. Before that was the Minister of Health of Mexico, and in that role introduced the, program, the first program of comprehensive national health insurance there, which expanded access to tens of millions of, of um, uninsured. He's on a long list of boards, agencies, and institutions, everything from the World Health Organization to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But my favorite fact about him is that he's written two best-selling novels for youngsters explaining the functions of the human body. <laughs> Next to him is Anna Langer, who is the director of the Women and Health Initiative, and we will talk later about why it is the Women and Health Initiative here at the Harvard School of Public Health. Um, she's been involved with research and hands-on work in pediatrics and neonatology and reproductive health and advocated for women through such roles as the CEO of Engender Health, the regional director for Latin America and the Caribbean at the Population Council, and the chair of the Department of Research in Women and Children's Health at Mexico's National Institute of Public Health. She's also a member of various editorial boards, including The Lancet, and my favorite fact about Anna is today she has an article on the Huffington Post <laughs> about everything that we are going to, or some of what we are going to discuss here today. And to my left is Christy Turlington Burns. You might recognize her. Um, she is a model, a writer, an entrepreneur, a spokesperson, an advocate, a filmmaker, and she's here pretty much in all those roles today. What strikes me about Christy is that her life informs her work. So she's the daughter of a Central American mother who then went on to support efforts to rebuild post-war El Salvador in the 1990s. She lost a father to lung cancer and became an activist for preventative health care, um, including smoking prevention. And her own complications around the 2003 birth of her first child led her to be the advocate she is now for maternal health. Um, she's the founder of Every Mother Counts, an advocacy and mobilization campaign to put the spotlight on women who are dying while giving life. And my favorite facts about Christy is she's interviewed the Dalai Lama, and she ran her first ING New York City Marathon last year with Team Every Mother Counts. Are you running again this year? We are. All right. <laughs> I'll be on the sidelines cheering. Um, <laughs> 
the debut of Every Mother Counts was coincided with the debut of No Women No Cry, which is a film that you're going to be screening here tonight. And so we thought we would start with the, the trailer for that to sort of set the mood and set the stage. The day my daughter was born was one of the greatest days of my life. But it also became the scariest. While I got the care I needed, too many women don't. So Christy, what got your attention and what, why should this get our attention? Well, as you could sort of see in that little bit of a teaser, um, after I delivered my daughter Grace nine years ago, nearly nine years ago, um, I experienced a postpartum hemorrhage. And um, I had a, a really perfect pregnancy and a perfect delivery up until the complication happened. And it, it really surprised me and frightened me. Um, but I was in a, a birthing center within a hospital in New York City and uh, the team that was working with me, my midwife, had an obstetrician that was backing her and he was right outside the door and the nurses worked really closely together. And as a team, they, you know, got me and my child um, to a place where we were stable and we were fine. Um, when I went home after delivering my daughter, um, you know, I started to explore, like, you know, why, why me? Why did this happen to me? And uh, there were no real medical answers that I could find up until recently, actually. <laughs> um, but um, in, in trying to understand what happened to me, I came across this shocking information around uh, global maternal health. And that I learned at that time that more than a half a million women were dying from um, pregnancy and childbirth-related causes around the world. And that completely shocked me. I thought that if a woman dies giving life, that it was probably a very, very rare event. Um, and it wasn't as rare as I assumed it was. And I think once I knew the information, I couldn't sort of put it elsewhere. It wasn't enough that I had the care I needed. I, I wanted to try to help ensure that every woman has that care. Um, so I, I sort of took a journey in um, learning more and exploring more and, and ended up uh, traveling to Central America and then South America to Peru to um, with care and that's where I kind of got to learn a little bit more about the global statistics and what was happening and what were some of the other causes and and what were some of the other solutions and the more that I learned about the solutions the more hope that I saw or that I felt and and it made me I think it inspired me to want to do more and to be able to make a film like this that I could bring more people into the conversation and into the um, the, the dialogue really that needs to continue in order to address address this issue. Is part of the reason we don't know because of, or is one of the obstacles to, to solving the problems, the fact that we all assume, like you assumed, that yeah, and, and back in the 1800s, women died in childbirth, but we fixed that now. 
I do think that's one of the problems. I mean, it's a tricky thing because in, it, there is a certain amount of fear in any pregnancy, right? I mean, we, we all kind of go into it with, it without knowing you know what's going to happen to us, and um, and and I think if we're honest with ourselves, you know, there's always that 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 fragility that comes along with giving birth. Um, so I think part of it is 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 almost PR that has gotten us to sort of like, no, you're going to be fine. This is perfectly natural. You're going to be you're going to be fine. People do this all the time, and and we've been doing it from the beginning of time. But I think with that, I mean, for me, I was a very um, I was a, a, a very informed pregnant person, you know, I, I really, I couldn't get more information in, you know, and, and yet I still didn't know. Um, and I feel that information is empowering and I think there's a way to um, make people aware of this without frightening them more, but to empower them and to, I think, um, you know, again, be a part of, be a part of a solution. So, Anna, why? Do the women who die die? I, you you brought us a pictorial representation of it. Sure. Explain. Yeah, most women die as a result of obstetric complications, complications that happen during pregnancy delivery or the immediate postpartum period, and those complications are the same everywhere. And you have them depicted on the right side of the or left side of the slide. Uh, those are uh, sepsis, postpartum hemorrhage, which, which is the condition that uh, Christie suffered of, obstructed labor, eclampsia, which is pregnancy-induced hypertension, and the complications of unsafe abortion, and a number of other causes. The, those complications happen to women everywhere, in developed and developing countries, uh, better off and poorer women. What makes the difference between life and death is access to good care, which is exactly what Christie's case illustrates. If all women had timely access to good quality care, the number of maternal deaths will significantly uh, improve or be, will be, would be significantly reduced. Uh, there are some statistics on that slide too. Uh, every 90 seconds a young woman dies while giving life. Uh, by definition, women who die as a result of pregnancy are all young. Uh, and uh, another very, very uh, appalling statistic is that 99% of maternal deaths happen uh, among the poorest women in developing countries, although in the U.S. we are not doing that well either. I mean, the U.S. ranks relatively low compared to other countries, probably because of the inequalities that exist in this country. In fact, maternal mortality is considered the health indicator that better reflects inequalities. And finally, what makes the, the maternal mortality even less acceptable as a public health condition that still uh, remains as an unsolved problem is that more than 90% of these deaths could be prevented with the knowledge and the tools we currently have. Um, Julio, you made this a, a cornerstone of your, your work here. So there's the Women and Health Initiative. Um, and and I think the name is interesting. It's not the Women's Health Initiative. Tell me about it. Uh, that's right. Uh, I mean, it's it's obvious that this is a, a huge problem, um, and uh, particularly because of you know all the indicators that uh, that, that we just heard. Particularly this question of th this is the most unequally distributed indicator, health indicator in the world. Um, <clears throat> the fact that 99% of the deaths happen in developing countries. Uh, makes makes it that, um, and 
we decided uh, that this ought to be a central focus of the work at the uh, Harvard School of Public Health, basically involving the entire school. And uh, for that, I developed this uh, flagship initiative called Women in Health that Anna Langer actually leads within the school. And notice that I use the word and. It's not women's health, as you pointed out, Lisa. It's women and health. And the idea here is to think about women not just as the bearers of the problems, but also as the uh, main actors in the solutions to those problems. Uh, if you look at the side of health problems of women, uh, think of a series of concentric circles where the core is this unacceptable situation of maternal mortality. Um, that is a core and it means we have to focus on that. It is one of the Millennium Development Goals. It's Millennium Development Goal number five. It's, it's very likely that this will be an MDG that will not be met. In fact, it's turned out to be the hardest of all of the eight MDGs to meet. And I don't think it's a coincidence that you know, all maternal deaths happen to women by definition. And uh, it's just a reflection of the more general um, subordinate place that women occupy in many societies in, in our world. But of course, we don't want to reduce women simply as uh, vehicles for the reproduction of, of, of the human species. And that's why there's a second circle that includes the first one, which is other aspects of sexual and reproductive health of women beyond pregnancy and delivery. And then there's a third circle, which is a, 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 an overall view of women's health along the life course. Um, emerging problems that are affecting women throughout the entire world, questions like violence against women, which is a huge problem. Or uh, in, in this very complex shift in dominant patterns of disease, the emergence of problems like cancer, cervical cancer, breast cancer. And then, um, it's a, so, so it is a comprehensive view, but it allows us, without reducing women only to the reproductive function, it allows us to keep the focus and expand. And then if you take this side of the equation, women, the, the health problems affecting women, then we also, the reason to use the adjective and, is that we're also looking at women as the main, uh, the key elements in the solution to those problems. Women are the main decision makers at, at the household level regarding their own health and the health of the family. Women are by far the largest component of the health workforce, both the informal health workforce, the community health workers, but also increasingly of the professional health uh, workforce. Um, so, you know, already even in the United States, a majority of medical students are women. Uh, we're very proud that at the Harvard School of Public <coughs> Health, around 60% of our graduates are women. Uh, so women are the main part of the uh, health workforce. And yet that uh, at progress on the educational front is not always translation, translated to the occupational front. Women are still underrepresented in positions of authority uh, in, in many, many national health systems. So the question is, how do we bring those two? And part of the, what the initiative aims to do is understand the problems, but then understand that there's no solution to those problems without women. So we've talked about the problem, and the next thing to talk about is the solution. I'm going to take a break, though, and because I don't want this to be just a complete conversation among us here, and, and open it just to questions about the problem, if, if anyone would like to direct them to the panel. 
So I work in um, Sierra Leone, which just emerged um, from an 11-year civil war in 2002 and is slowly um, rebuilding or building a health system, which has been pretty much um, non-operational, non-existent for a long time. And thinking about this ecological model, the multi-layered um, strategies needed as they are now launching this free um, uh, child health care plan that provides free health services to children uh, up to the age of five and pregnant and lactating mothers. Um, there are some mechanisms to build on. And if you were advising a, a government in a low resource setting like this about what are the key ingredients that you have to, and if you think not just in the immediate um, care encounter, but also across the layers uh, strategically, what are the key ingredients that need to be um, anticipated and invested in uh, for improving, for reducing maternal mortality, but also improving and promoting overall women's health and the health of girls across the life cycle? Anyone? I mean, let me jump in just with my experience in Mexico as Minister of Health. Uh, in the context of a, of a comprehensive reform. So, it, you know, we weren't coming out of a civil war, but it was a moment of great political transition. And uh, the idea of, uh, in a country that had finally made the transition towards democracy, of thinking of um, social rights as, com as an integral part of democracy. So, you know, also a, a moment of, of very, uh, very important social change. It was uh, possible to to postulate the idea that you cannot accept this kind of inequalities. Um, and that, that drove a general health reform process that, uh, as Lisa was saying at the beginning, has led now to universal coverage. There were 50 million people uninsured, and half of those were, uh, and half of the population, and those are all now insured. And the question was how in a process of overall reform of the health system, how do you keep the priorities very, very focused? And uh, this is what you know, some colleagues have called a diagonal approach to, to, uh, <laughs> to health systems, because we've had this tradition of vertical approaches. And, you know, maternal and child health programs have typically been like that, a focus on, on pregnant women and very young children. And then, you know, the rest of the health system may be falling apart, but that's only the focus. It's not satisfactory just to have a horizontal approach where you need to build up, and especially after a civil war, a health system without a clear sense of priorities because uh, inevitably when you do that, <laughs> health systems end up catering to the needs of the better off. You end up building big hospitals in the capital city and, and forgetting. So the solution is a diagonal approach where you use clear priorities to drive general improvements that are there, especially to face the consequences of success, right? And maternal mortality is the perfect, the perfect priority to do that because, you know, you can, you can prevent some diseases, you can prevent some malaria deaths with spraying and doing things that are separate from the general system. You can even immunize kids, but you cannot stop women from dying in childbirth and pregnancy if you don't have a functional health system. So if you use that as your driver, it allows you to focus resources and, and attention and political will around a, a cause where it is very, very, uh, you know, it's a very powerful cause. As I think, you know, Christie's work in, in promoting this, not just in the United States, but actually globally has demonstrated. And then you use that priority to drive general improvements and to build up the, 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 the health system and make sure that, you know, the women that do not die in childbirth actually are able to then have access to a system that will take care of all the other needs. Because, you know, 
in health, we're always victims of our own success. And it's exactly the same women that didn't die in childbirth that are going to live long enough to develop cervical cancer or breast cancer or a, 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 a other things. So we cannot just reduce that. But the trick here is not to say everything is important and then lose the focus. Keep the focus and then use that focus to drive the general improvements that then will be there to take care of the, of the rest of the agenda. Anna, do you want in? If I may add something, uh, Julia beautifully explained what needs to be done at the health systems level. Uh, but there are other components that also need to be taken into account. Uh, the social determinants of maternal mortality are very important, and those are basically the gender in inequalities or the low value that some societies and cultures uh, assign to women. I don't know if that would be the case in Sierra Leone or not. I'm not so familiar uh, with that particular country, but probably that's the case. So. Uh, women are not considered an asset that is valuable enough to invest what uh, needs to be invested in terms of eradicate preventable maternal death. And then also the communities, because communities need to be prepared to use that better health system that Julio just described. Be prepared in all kinds of ways. Uh, recognize when there is a complication, uh, have the, the transportation somehow resolved so women will get to the place where she, they, can, uh, they will get what they need. Uh, there needs to be like a, a change in the mindset of the people too who will hopefully use those services that will provide the care uh, that women need to prevent death and disability. Okay, fine, so how? <laughs> I mean, there are, there are programs going on here that, that you're personally involved in. What works? What have we learned actually works? Yes. Uh, I, the, the flagship program within the Dean's Flagship Initiative <laughs> is the, uh, it's called the Maternal Health Task Force. And this is a large and ambitious pro project or program, I should say, because it's quite comprehensive, that the Gates Foundation and other committed donors generously support. And with that uh, program, we do a number of things that I would briefly describe and invite you all to visit our website to learn more about it. Uh, we are working in uh, some countries in Africa and in India as well, in Ethiopia, in, in Nigeria, in Tanzania, uh, in India, and a little bit in Mexico. And in those countries, we are, we are trying to improve the quality of maternal health care. In fact, the overarching theme of the work of the Maternal Health Task Force has to do with quality improvement. And why did we decide to do that? Because many of these countries have already put in place mechanisms uh, that uh, give women's, women access to health services. But once they get to those services, they don't receive the care, th the care they need. Uh, because there is no a blood bank, because there is no surgeon available to, uh, to perform the surgery that is needed, because they treat her poorly from a, an interpersonal uh, point of view. Many women are, are treated in a disrespectful way and therefore don't want to use uh, the services. So we are working on improving the quality of uh, those services in the countries that I mentioned, both in urban and rural areas. We also uh, provide a space or create opportunities for professionals in the maternal health community to come together and share information, share lessons learned. We promote South-South collaboration. And uh, we also want to give colleagues from developing countries a louder voice. 
because to some extent uh, the maternal uh, health agenda has been developed uh, by uh, wonderful, amazing uh, people uh, in the North. And our colleagues from the countries where the actual maternal deaths happen haven't had an equal opportunity to set priorities. So we are particularly focused on that. We provide a large number of scholarships so uh, colleagues from developing countries can come uh, to the conferences and technical uh, events that we organize. Uh, we will have soon the second uh, Global Maternal Health Conference in Arusha, Tanzania in January of 2013. And that's where we are applying the approach that I just described. And uh, finally, uh, two other components that I would briefly mention. Uh, we are uh, educating the next generation of professionals in the maternal health field uh, in the countries where we work and here in the U.S. too. Uh, we are opening opportunities for Harvard students and others uh, to get exposed to the realities of women's lives in developing countries and what it means to deliver in those places. And we have a very robust knowledge management system. In other words, a website that organizes in a very user-friendly way data, uh, the uh, maps that show who's doing what where on maternal health, uh, new papers, uh, events that are going to happen. So everybody can go to that website uh, and learn uh, what's going on in the field of maternal health. Do we know why the numbers have gone down? We know why the numbers are up. We just talked about that. Do we know what what's gotten better, what we're doing right that has caused them to drop? Uh, do go ahead. I don't know. I, uh, very briefly, I think that the, the increased attention that Julia was mentioning before uh, definitely contributed. The fact that the, the international community embraced the reduction of maternal mortality as one of eight Millennium Development Goals definitely helped. So we have a moment here to use. And exactly. And we should use it. Yes. Uh, uh, this is a, a moment that uh, matters to countries, that matters to the international community, to the UN. The UN just had the General Assembly this week and again ratified maternal mortality, or the reduction of maternal mortality as one of the global top priorities. And also some technical developments that have happened over the last few years. I mean, we now know much better how to deal with some of the complications uh, that I briefly described uh, some minutes ago. Uh, and uh, yeah, basically the result of advocacy, research, and commitment and engagement from the global and country level communities have contributed to the decline that we are now seeing. So Christy, talk to me about the attention, because that's what you bring to this. I mean, you have a megaphone and that's how you use it. What makes it resonate with the people who have to fund this, who have to, all your work is only possible if there, there are funders and grants and, and what do people respond to and what do they not respond to so much? Well, I guess my role has really been around engaging the general population. Um, there have been a number of people working very hard on this issue for 30 years plus. <laughs> and um, when I came into the field, I, I could recognize that all of this, I mean, one of the first questions I asked one of my mentors early on was, how do you keep at this when the numbers aren't changing? And then suddenly, the next year later, the numbers started changing. And I don't know that, that I mean, that's all the effects of a lot of different things that have been at, at work for a long time. And I think there is a 
there's a misconception that these things happen quickly. And I think that's what's difficult for donors to understand. I mean, these things take time and they take generations. And surveys in many countries are done every 10 years. And they're not done every year, like this information that keeps showing this declining number is proving. So it's, it's, it's great to see that the numbers are coming down, but I think a better, um, a better lens on why and, and, and how and what methodologies are we using to, to understand what the data is showing us is really important too. And then my job is to disseminate that information to the general public so that they can see that, yes, this is progress, yes, this is hope, but it's not so, so easy that it's going to figure itself out. Like We still have to continue at this. Because one of the places that it has become more of a focus of attention is here, where it is still clearly a problem, but not the same dimension of a problem. So what resonates here? Well, I, I think there's that sense that it, you know, that it can happen, that there is, I mean, for me, I try to message that it can happen to anyone. The complications can. I mean, 15% of any pregnancy can have a complicated outcome. And that difference is the disparities. For me, some, some people, because it's a very um, fragmented globe in the sense that there's people working on the international piece of it, and then there's people who are working on the domestic piece of it. And our health system is broken as well. So um, I think it's been a great opportunity to show where where we are on equal footing. When people see No Woman, No Cry, people are most outraged by the U.S., not because it's so, I mean, it, it, it could definitely improve, not because of the degree of how bad you see it in the film, but more because they, they're not aware that there's a problem whatsoever. And when you think about, you know, what we spend per capita and all of those things, you know, in Tanzania, they say, oh, interesting. Uh, the U.S. is still having some struggles. I think it just helped put us on equal footing, and I think that that's a very effective, I mean, that's a great place for us all to be because this is a global tragedy. This is something that we all need to work on. And then in terms of audiences, too, building a constituency of people who say that they care about this issue. I mean, women in health, or women's health, is a very politicized subject in this country. And so to talk about rights and to talk about access to women who still have rights and access um, is a really important uh, connection to make as well. And then we do have the ability to use our voices. And so I encourage people, you know, it doesn't cost anything. Use your voice. We have the ability to do that. And then just building on the collective voice of, of, of people who care and who are informed, that is going to be a pretty powerful tool when it comes time to um, making our countries move forward. So there's the emotional moral claim on, on this subject, and then there's the evidence-based claim. And we know a lot more, and that's influencing entire governments, or we don't know as much as we need to know yet? I, I would say there's definitely a moral claim here, uh, a number of <clears throat> broad societal questions, like the role of women in a society, uh, questions of human rights. Uh, and I think in addition to that, there is a growing awareness that uh, you know, this kind of disparities has huge effects on other dimensions of the global agenda. This is a major drain on the possibilities of development. I mean, the death of a woman, it's a tragedy in itself, and, and it shouldn't happen. It also has an amazing uh, repercussion in the rest of the family. You know, surviving children uh, of women who die uh, uh, especially in childbirth, but under any circumstance, the surviving children, their own risk of dying rises exponentially in the, in the next few months after the death of, of, of a mother. Um, it, it disrupts community life. It has huge effects on economic development. And it is a major threat to global security. 
because it's exactly a world where these disparities happen that generates you know, the sort of um, resentment and uh, extremist views uh, about the world. It, it is a, it is a extreme case of, of injustice. So addressing this, in addition to you know, appealing to our uh, ethical frameworks, also has to be tackled as a major issue, as a major threat to global development and global and national security. And I think that what has happened, and one factor why we are finally starting to see progress, because as Christy was saying, I mean, material debts were stuck stubbornly in about half a million a year for, for a long period of time. Finally, we're starting to see something because uh, I think, first of all, the awareness, the, the advocacy has worked, the fact that this became one of the uh, Millennium Development Goals, the fact that we woke up to the fact, you know, around, um, you know, 2005, that this was the MDG where we were lagging the most. This awareness of the role of health in the larger agenda, and, uh, and, and I think this is what's created, and then some innovations. I mean, I think there's been technological innovations, but I think one important thing has been some uh, very interesting health systems innovations. Uh, for example, you know, a, a big a big example is the use of conditional cash transfers to give incentives to women to deliver in um, in health facilities in India. Uh, that program was pioneered in India. It has been evaluated, and also to health workers. So creating incentives for, for women to go to a clinic rather than deliver at home, that has made a huge difference. Uh, WHO has adopted a, a very interesting innovation, which was developed here at the School of Public Health by Atul Gawande of a safe birth uh, uh, checklist, a very simple tool, but that actually en enhances the quality of, of uh. now there's still a lot to, to do. I mean, the 280,000 remaining deaths is, is, is just unacceptable and those numbers. But I think we now have a momentum uh, and uh, the MDGs created for the first time a mutually agreed framework for accountability. Every country, including rich countries like the United States, are now accountable for reaching those those goals. And it is a minimum. It's not everything. There's not uh, just women who die in childbirth. There's women who don't die in childbirth, but experience substantial complications afterwards. Uh, and then there's this rest of the women and health agenda. But I, th I think we are at a moment um, where, where we need to really to use this opportunity because of the visibility. I'm going to open this up to all of you and and see what's on your mind and what you want to ask. Any questions? Sure. Uh, Richard Cash in the Department of Global Health and Population. Uh, I would submit to Julio and to others that there's a fourth circle which you uh, alluded to. That is the health of the woman and that impact on the rest of the society. Uh, postpartum depression, of course, affects uh, the ability to care for the child. Premature death of the mother effects. But if you take that stance, then maternal mortality is important, but it is only one part of the agenda. And I wonder whether there is, uh, as important as it is, whether there's too much emphasis on this and not on these other collateral impacts that the health of the mother has on the rest of the family and the society. I mean, I, I think the uh, using this um, extreme negative outcome uh, is a, a, a way of focusing our attention on that problem, but then exactly engaging in, 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 in the rest of the circles. Um, uh, the, 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 the larger effect of a maternal death uh, 
uh, I think opens up a whole, a whole host of things. And you know, it creates the opportunity for the sort of diagonal approach that I was uh, alluding to. Um, because, uh, and, and, that's, and that's what the Women and Health Initiative tries to do. Um, and then you know, it, it opens the opportunity also to start analyzing the sort of upstream uh, determinants that Anna was talking about. Uh, you know, there is a, a very close correlation between the level of maternal mortality and the status of women in a society. Uh, <coughs> so, you know, it opens the opportunity to focus not just on the downstream effect, but, you know, to really do what's the essence of public health, which is to understand the root causes and try to intervene at that level and raise the question of the general status of women and the rights of women in societies. But if you just start from the abstract notion, I think it's very hard to do it. When you start with an extreme outcome, which I think everyone will agree that in the 21st century is a totally unacceptable outcome, then, then you can take that and open the, the larger conversation. Anna? Yes, I, w I, I would like to add a few comments uh, to uh, Julio and, and a comment that Christy made earlier. It's important to put maternal health in the context of uh, women's health throughout the life cycle. Whatever happens to girls and uh, young adolescents will affect maternal health. And whatever happens during the reproductive years will affect our post-reproductive years. So it's not that our lives as women can be so easily compartmentalized. Uh, so I think that it's okay to focus on particular conditions or particular periods because, well, you need to choose your battles, as Julia was explaining, but without uh, losing sight of that uh, broad, broader continuum. And I, I uh, Christy briefly mentioned uh, reproductive health, and I want to say a few words about that. The MDG number five that we are talking about was adopted in 2001, uh, but it the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, didn't make any reference to reproductive health, uh, which is sexual reproductive health, in fact, which is an agenda that the international community had embraced many years before, in 1994. So somehow that re reductionist focus was forgetting all the other reproductive health needs that women have. Thanks to, uh, well, very, very focused advocacy efforts and second target was introduced to the MDG in 2007 only that says that by 2015 all women should have uh, access to reproductive health care. Uh, we are very, very far from there. And uh, Christy was referring uh, earlier about how controversial some of these reproductive health conditions or needs are. Maternal health, nobody seems to challenge as a priority, but there are other conditions that are so closely linked to maternal health and women's health that are much trickier uh, when you try to, uh, to implement them. Even things that we gave for granted, like family planning, uh, that are now challenged in this country and many others as a fundamental right that women have uh, to plan their, preg their pregnancies. Uh, so uh, it's, a, it's an issue that can be looked at from many different perspectives, and sometimes it seems relatively simple, but if you start scratching the surface a little bit, uh, it has many other layers that make it quite complex. 
So basically, you have to decide what to tackle based not only on medical and global need, but also the prevailing political winds at the time. Yeah, that's definitely something that you need to, to have in mind. And we as, as researchers and professionals in this area can contribute to somehow solve those tensions by providing evidence, hopefully. So for instance, there is strong evidence about the links between family planning and maternal, or access to good family planning and maternal mortality. Uh, some people think that giving a voluntary access uh, to women to good quality family planning would be the most effective intervention to reduce maternal mortality. Because uh, you would reduce the exposure to pregnancy and therefore by definition fewer women If you're not die. pregnant, you cannot die in childbirth. Exactly. Yes. That's one I, I of think the, that's pretty much a fact. That's one of the mechanisms it works through. But there are other, other mechanisms too. If women have access to family planning, you can prevent two, um, pregnancies that happen too early in their lives or too late in their lives. You can space pregnancies better. Uh, and you have a tool uh, to, well, to become pregnant when you are ready for it, both from a biological and social point of view. And yet you have to work around those. I mean, that's simply a reality of all providing of, of health care anywhere in the world. Exactly, yeah. So any other questions? Yeah. I'm Jacqueline Barber, FXB Center. I wanted to um, ask a, a, a maybe more basic question, which is uh, really picking up on what you said, Julio, about getting women to healthcare facilities. Does that mean that it's always the case that it's better for women to give birth in a facility than at home, irrespective of the quality of the facility? Because my impression, having seen some of these facilities, is that they are um, dangerous places. And so I just wonder what the message is. Is there a consensus? Um, or, or, you know, how does one approach that? No, it's a, it's a great question. And um, uh, I mean, it goes hand in hand with what Anna was stressing as the main theme of the maternal task force, which is the question of quality. Um, still, in very poor communities, delivering at home is, is not a, uh, it, it's, it has a huge risk. Uh, but obviously, getting to a facility just to find that there's no personnel or no uh, materials is, is not much better. So this um, program in India that I was referring to was a company with a very important component of strengthening the supply of services and the quality of services. Uh, and just going to any facility is, is, is not enough. Um, so so the, 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 the it's not just a question of access, it's a question of access and quality. It's a f effective coverage, coverage that actually uh, uh, tackles the, uh, the problem. Um, and what I was trying to illustrate there is the use of, uh, in this case, incentives, both for the mothers and for the health workers to actually do that. But there are many others. I mean, um, I first met Anna when she, she did a very interesting um, study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, where the intervention was to get traditional birth attendants, which take care of a lot of women, in this case it was a rural community in Mexico, to work as a team with the uh, nurses and the obstetricians that were more in the <coughs> allopathic medicine tradition. And this is a huge hurdle. And you know, it's not a pill, it's not, <laughs> it's this kind of sy systems innovations that I think 
also hold as much, if not more, promise than, than discrete technological innovations. Um, developing cultural competencies so that you really get uh, a, a teamwork and you mobilize community health workers, but hand in hand with the, with the, with the health professionals. It, it, it's, it's those kinds of innovations that I think are also very much part of what we should be looking at. And then the other big effort which we need, which is, yeah, you know, there's lots of innovation, there's lots of progress, but we have lacked systematic ways for shared learning. So, you know, somebody does something, it has a great result, and then no one learns about it. And again, this is something that the Maternal Task Force is trying to address. It's, you know, building the evidence base and making sure that there's room for learning what works and probably more important, what doesn't work. Um, so, so it's the entire collection. I wouldn't say that simply assuring access uh, uh, by itself will we, we, we'll, we'll, uh, achieve the, the results. But by the way, all of this is well within our reach. I mean, it is, it, it, it is difficult, but it can be done. And the fact that you know, India has achieved pretty spectacular reductions in maternal mortalities, in maternal mortality, many other countries have as well. Um, in Mexico, we're able to rap greatly increase the rate of decline with a series of very, very focused um, uh, and clear, clearly focused interventions, but that were part of this larger conception of women and health. <coughs> we have a question from an online viewer from Moscow, and this is a reproductive health question. Are there any incentive programs that you know of being in place or that you think should be run by communities, countries, cities, states, or governments to encourage family planning and eventually limit population growth? The, the Not as many as there should be? <laughs> no, no, no. I think we, it's very important. Uh, th those were tried a number of years ago, and they failed. Uh, this is a question of reproductive rights uh, of couples, but especially of women. Uh, and uh, the, the, the best predictor of you know, the decline of fertility is to actually uh, uh, reduce uh, uh, infant mortality, right? And so, you know, in a context where a lot of kids die, you, you can introduce <laughs> whatever incentives you want. It's, it's not going to work. There is a question of human rights here, and it's a question of allowing women to, to women and men to freely choose the number and spacing in an informed way of the children they will have. Um, uh, I, I think this is not a problem of population explosion. Uh, this is a problem of fundamental rights of, of, of people, and this is a fundamental uh, uh, part of the health picture. As um, Anna was explaining, you know, uh, l uh, having large number of pregnancies, especially among very young women or uh, uh, women at the end of the reproductive age, closely spaced kids, all of that increases the risk. This is a, a, a health issue. Uh, I don't like framing this in terms of a population explosion because I think that misses the point. Uh, it, it, and it misses the point that the, every country where fertility has declined, and it has declined in the vast majority of countries of the world, that was preceded by a decline in infant mortality. Uh, and that's because the families have the certainty that their children will survive, and that then creates the motivation to try to adopt modern methods to determine the number and spacing of children. And then what you need is a good health system that assures that those contraceptives and other measures are provided 
in time. And then what you need is a societal effort to assure that women can exercise those uh, choices in a free way. Uh, but, you know, thinking that with a number of incentives we're going to do that was tried in the 1970s, that didn't work. It's a much more comprehensive approach, I think, that will work. Anyone else? I would just like to stress the role of women's education. Uh, that's another big driver of uh, reduced fertility, uh, in addition to the reduction of infant mortality that Julia was mentioning, and opportunities for women to uh, enroll or engage in the, in the paid labor force. Isn't women's economic status also linked directly to, to fertility rates? The higher exactly. the economic, uh, economic status, the lowest the fertility. Um, are there any other hands who want the mic, or anyone else from around the world? <laughs> I, I do like the fact that we're reminded there are other people in the room. Yes, I'm not sure what the source of this question is, but having watched a related video in YouTube about Uniject and its widespreading use in India and other poor countries. I wonder if you could provide us with more information about medicine oxytocin and its beneficial influence on prevention and treatment in postpartum hemorrhage. Thank you in advance. Well, oxytocin is a drug that can be used uh, to prevent or to treat postpartum hemorrhage. Uh, the limitation of oxytocin as a drug is that it's an injectable drug that needs to be stored uh, in a cool place, in a cold place, that needs cold, a cold chain uh, to be stored uh, in. So that limits its use in places where the temperatures are very high and uh, where providers are not uh, trained to, uh, to inject the drug or not, are not allowed to do it. Uh, so there are other options. There is another drug called misoprostol that is now, uh, well, now we have the evidence that it also works very well, and it's pills, and it's heat stable. So sorry, that's a long introduction, <laughs> and that was a good question for me. So the, the, the point that uh, this person is making is an important one, because the Uniject is a device that was developed by PATH, an organization that works on health technologies, uh, that allows, uh, well, it's pre-filled, and it has the exact dose you need, and it's very easy to uh, use to administer an injection. So now oxytocin uh, is available in a Uniject format, and hopefully that will increase its use quite significantly. And there are some groups that are working on the development of a temperature-stable uh, version of oxytocin. So hopefully, we will soon have a much better and broader uh, range of options for postpartum hemorrhage. Which is an example to me of the complexity of this, that it's not just, everyone can agree, yes, it is bad that mothers die. But what it comes down to is not just even necessarily the will or the belief in that, but things like what, what form medications take. And it's where reporting on this has always fascinated me, because it seems so obvious. And then you're talking about things like injectable oxytocin. Um, <laughs> we, we have time for an, one more question. Is there any? Yeah. Hi, my name is Grace. Um, I work in health policy and management, but I'm also a student in global health. Um, my question is about the men. 
So we talked a lot about women, women's education, and women's women and health. But what about the the men in women's health, and maybe your experience from the field and your observations, and you know some examples of uh, projects that have targeted men, included men, and just sort of um, that whole piece around women's health. I mean, I've I've seen a number of programs, community-based programs um, in Bangladesh and in Tanzania that really focus on men. And I've seen it in Ethiopia as well, where um, you know, educating the leaders of the communities, the religious leaders, inviting the men and the younger men even in um, really the whole community, so that everybody is um, everybody is a stakeholder in the life of each person that lives in that community. And again, it's not the kind of thing that happens very quickly, um, but but I think those that is a way forward. And I think t there's always the question in the room, which is, what about the men? And I think it's such an important thing to remember because, obviously, um, you know, the half the sky analogy I think is very effective because it really is that. And, you know, I have a, a daughter and a son, and so it's equally important for each of them to understand responsibility that we all play um, in, in one another's lives. Will this, will initiatives like this work without the buy-in of, of men? No. <laughs> as, uh, and do men buy into yeah. this as much as they should? Well, as the only man, as the only man on the panel, uh, uh, no, I, I mean, we, we are most often a big part of the problem. But we can be a, a big part of the solution. To you personally. Uh, I, I, I happen to have a twin sister, so I think that uh, you know when you share your mother's womb with a woman, it gives you a number of insights <laughs> about touch, the relationship between the yes. sexes that is very important. It's uh, you know it, it is it, it, this is a reflection of the one cultural constant. I mean, this human r species we have that is so culturally diverse. The one cultural constant is the oppression of women. Every culture has developed mechanisms and institutionalized mechanisms to oppress women. I have a number of theories about why that is coming from my insights of my relationship with my twin sister, but <laughs> I'm going to spare those for you. The fact of the matter is that unless we involve men in, in this question, I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, what Christy is saying is absolutely cr cr uh, critical. Um, uh, you know, you see, I, I have seen it, you know, very closely uh, in, in a number of issues where you talk with women and the men didn't interfere with their timely transportation, with their access to care. Uh, in the case of breast cancer, you know, women that don't go and do a mammogram because they're afraid that they're going to be abandoned. If the, there is this, you know, social disease which is called machismo and, uh, <laughs> and, and we, it's, it's part of the picture. Uh, and conversely, I think that men, when they uh, are be become and are included in the solution and, and their role is explained, uh, they, they can be a powerful partner in this process. We play a very small part in reproduction, but it's sti still essential. Um, so, you know. Um, uh, Although there are lab experiments going on <laughs> right. right now that uh, will. So, <laughs> but I, I, I thank you for raising that issue because I, I think we tend to forget. We talk of women and health or women's health. But implicit in the idea of women and health is the question of, of uh, you know, uh, the, the relations among men and women as well, and the role that men can play both in the negative and in the positive. We 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 got to work a lot on that. 
My clock is telling me it's time to wind down, so I'm going to thank all of you and particularly thank our panel so much for, for what's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.